Yet today we are talking about forgiveness, and specifically we're talking about the line in the Lord's Prayer, forgive as we forgive others. Forgive us as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. And so today, um, what we're going to do is I'm going to introduce this topic, and then I'm going to invite Dina up. She's going to share with me for the second half. I'm going to kind of interview her, so to say. Um, But the truth of the matter is, as we talk about forgiveness, there's two aspects. There's I need to be forgiven for something I did, and then it's I need to forgive people for things that they've done. And both of those aspects are hard. I mean, the truth is we love being forgiven. Like, I love it when people forgive me. I like it that God forgives me. It's a little harder, however, to forgive other people the things that they have done. I mean, we can all relate to that reality, right? That we like the idea of being forgiven, but forgiving others is a little bit more difficult. I mean, if you think about this, practically speaking, Every day, every single day, you come up against decisions where you need to decide whether you're going to forgive somebody. Because the reality is every time someone does something wrong, you have to choose whether or not you're going to be offended. And so whether they cut you off, whether they flip you off, whether they spit on you or worse, you are deciding in that moment, will I be offended by this? Will I be quick to get offended by everything under the sun because you looked at me the wrong way or you didn't include me on your text message or whatever it might be? Or am I going to choose to forgive you and overlook that offense, even though I might want to exact it from you? And so the reason this is important is because not forgiving impacts us. It impacts us. Matter of fact, just from a a completely secular perspective, this is unspiritual. This is what psychological research shows, what unforgiveness does to you. In other words, if you have unforgiveness in your heart that you refuse to give towards your, you know, your whatever, your your ex-spouse, your parents, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, whatever it is, when you harbor unforgiveness, it leads to mental health issues of anxiety and depression. There can be stress responses that it actually leads to elevated cortisol levels and increased heart rate that can have impact on your cardiovascular health, compromised immune function, gastrointestinal issues. There's some research that suggests it can even um, catalyze cancer, low self-esteem, negative self-perception, leading to a complete lack of confidence, difficulties, and then forming and maintaining relationships because of that. Impaired coping mechanisms, in other words, you turn to other things to deal with your unforgiveness instead of dealing with it in a healthy way. Social isolation, because you don't trust people. Sleep disturbances, relationship strain, cognitive impact even on your memory. These are some of the research in the secular world has shown what a refusal to forgive other people can do to you. And that doesn't count anything spiritual. And when we talk about the spiritual implications of a lack of forgiveness, it kind of gets terrifying, to be honest. So in the middle of Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. He says, when you pray, pray like this. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And that's That's the only part of the Lord's Prayer that we tend to remember. But after, and this is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus offers commentary on. So after he goes through the Lord's Prayer, the next verse, Jesus is going to comment on something he said in the Lord's Prayer because it seems confusing. And this is what he's going to comment on. So Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then if you jump two verses ahead, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses... 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you. And we go, I don't know what to do with that theologically, so I'm just going to ignore it. Jesus said it. Forgive us our debts. When we look at the word debt here, debt is about sin. When humans sin, that means that we fail to meet a moral and spiritual standard set by God because he's holy. When we sin in a legal sense, in a moral sense, we accrue a debt. We accrue a debt that is owed, okay? And so we accrue this debt because we fall short of God's perfect righteousness. We fall short of his glory. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about confession. And so we're not gonna harbor this too much. We're not gonna hash this out. We don't wanna push too much into the idea of me needing forgiveness today because that's not, we, that's not our focus for the sermon. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Summarizing that sermon, however, we saw in 1 John 1, 9, Jesus, or um, John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. And so this idea here, when Jesus says, forgive us our debts, he's saying that I've accrued, when we accrue a debt because of sin, we need to ask the Lord to forgive it. That was what we talked about. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 13. He says, you are clean. Each of you is clean, but I still need to wash your feet right? And so we have that regular process of, of going before the Lord with the debt that we accrue, not because he hasn't paid for it, but because we want to have relationally healthy, short accounts. See, the, that's the way in which God forgives us is by refusing to exact payment for that debt from us. And instead, he exacts payment from, for that debt from someone else. Specifically, God exacts that payment from his son, from Jesus. Now, when we look at 12b and 14 and 15 again, this is what we really want to focus on, as we have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't, then he won't. So what we encounter here is a rather troublesome truth. And the troublesome truth is this. The forgiveness that we seek from God is somehow tied to our willingness to extend forgiveness to other people. Jesus says it right? We're going to try to explain it. In other words, Jesus says that if you want to be forgiven, there's a reciprocal nature to the forgiveness that you offer. He uses the word if twice in case we didn't know if he was being serious. If. It's a reciprocal nature of forgiveness. If means that forgiveness, forgiving others, is an active choice, not a passive thing that happens to you. That's just ignoring something. Okay? Forgiveness is an active choice that you have to make. And I think the reality here is that, no, we don't earn forgiveness by forgiving others. We don't earn forgiveness by by anything. Forgiveness is by grace alone, by faith alone. But forgiveness flows from a place of being forgiven. That when we are forgiven, God begins to change us and transform us. And a person who refuses to forgive, a person who refuses to be a peacemaker, a person who, re- who craves revenge, is lacking the transformative power of Christ in their heart. Because Jesus says throughout the, the Gospels and then the, the apostles unpack throughout the New Testament that if you've been forgiven of much, you love much. And that we are called, like Jess read in Colossians 3.13, to forgive as the Lord forgave 
us, okay? And so the idea is that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith which we have is an active faith. It's a faith at work. It's not a works-based faith. It's a faith that brings about something, a faith that brings forth fruit in our lives. But we have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus include this in teaching on prayer? It seems kind of random. And I think the truth is that a lack of forgiveness towards other people forms a block in our relationship with God. See, because prayer is not some kind of ritualistic one-way communication, but prayer is a transformative dialogue that's happening with our Savior and with our Creator. How can we pray, God, please forgive me, while also refusing to offer relational restoration and forgiveness to another person? I've shared this before, but you know, if I go up to one of you after the service and I punch you in the face, right? You're going to be like, Bill's a jerk. And maybe you'll even punch me back, okay? But if I go up and there is a police, out, a police officer out front and I go up to the police officer and I just wail him in the face, what's going to happen? I'm going to get arrested, right? Now, if it just so happens that at that exact moment there's a motorcade driving by with, um, you know, King Charles and I just stop the motorcade and I punch him in the face, what's going to happen? It's going to be bad. The point is, with the increased importance of the person who's being sinned against, the severity of punishment is also increased. And in the case of the Lord, we have a God who is the creator. He's the holy, 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 the uncreated one. And we have committed divine blasphemy against him on every facet imaginable. And he's forgiven us in Christ. And that's why he says, if you've been forgiven of much, you love much. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells this, or we see this interesting story. Some people um, will, will debate it. But in John chapter 8, we see this interesting story where at dawn, Jesus goes to the temple and all the people are coming around to him and he sits down and he's teaching them. And then all of a sudden, the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring this woman up and they say, hey, we caught this woman in adultery. We caught her in the act. And they say to Jesus, according to the law, she needs to be stoned to death. And so, are you ready to do this? And Jesus stooped down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. And they keep questioning and asking him, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We got to stone this woman. And Jesus says, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. And when they heard this, the scriptures say that beginning with the oldest and then going to the youngest, one by one, they walked away because those with the longest memory of their own sin realize that they also should be stoned. And then once everyone is gone, Jesus said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And when we look at this story from kind of the, the 40,000 foot view, we see a couple key things. One, we see that God is holy. God does give a law and the law has high demands. And the Pharisees were right to say that, in fact, this woman should have been stoned to death, okay? But what the Pharisees failed to understand is that it isn't just about God's law, it's also about God's character. And they viewed God as this plug and chug formula as opposed to an emotional deity, in other words, a, a, a deity with thinking and, and feelings, and he isn't just this cold, calculating machine. Second, we realize that God is compassionate towards sinners. 
that the idea that a holy God would be compassionate towards others is striking when you consider the fact that Jesus says, let the one without you, without sin rather, let the one without sin be the one to judge. Because the only person who was present ever without sin was Jesus. God is the only one who technically can judge because he's the only one without sin. And the third truth we realize is that all have sinned that this woman was not perfect, but neither were her accusers. And that's why they all eventually leave. And so here we have this crossroads of a holy God and a sinful man in this tension. That in order to be forgiven, I need to know that I'm in need of forgiveness. And if you, like the Pharisees, when they first arrived on the scene, if you think you're without sin, then you will be quick to condescend and condemn other people you will point your finger at anyone who isn't like you and doesn't measure up. But if you know the depth of your own failures, and if you know that the only way that you can stand before God is by grace and mercy and not merit, then you start to view other people differently. The reality is before we can even talk about giving forgiveness to other people, it begins with us realizing our own depth of despair and despondency and depravity the deep, deep well that I need to be forgiven of. Because the gospel is all about forgiveness. It's forgiveness received by trusting in Jesus's death and resurrection. But it's also forgiveness given. Forgiveness given to undeserving people. Why? Because I'm an undeserving person. Nobody in this room has experienced the forgiveness of Christ deserved it. It's not because of our hard work. It's because of his grace. And so where do you begin? One, realize that you need forgiveness you cannot earn. Two, embrace the reality that the forgiveness God needs to give you is greater in scope and severity than anything you will ever need to forgive another person of. Three, when you've been hurt, this is the most crucial, well, maybe not the most crucial, but it's the least um, logical, the one that you maybe have given the least thought to. When you have been hurt, come to grips with the idea that you are guilty of the same thing on a spiritual level. Jesus says to hate a brother is to murder a brother. Jesus says to lust after a woman is to commit adultery. And even if you say, well, I have perfect self-control, Jesus says, every time you love an idol, you commit adultery on me. And so we realize that we are deeply, deeply guilty. But that's why Jesus came to die. Despite all of that, And so we need to realize those key things. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask him to help us forgive other people. And um, I'm going to invite Dina to come up now because I know there's at least one person in the room who is thinking, Pastor Bill, you don't know what has been done to me. You don't know the stuff that I've gone through. You don't know what my ex-husband did, how he ruined my life. You don't know what my coworker did. You don't know these things. And so I've asked Dina, I asked Dina probably well over a month ago if she would pray about sharing this morning. Um, And so I'm going to, without further ado, yeah, welcome Dina. Hey, good morning. I'm going to take off my glasses. Yeah, just, that's why I just close my eyes and pretend uh, like they're not there. Yeah, it's kind of bright and also you look like, um, I don't know, a Renoir painting right now, so I can't (laughs) really see your faces, so that's good for me anyways. Uh, Good morning. I just, um, for those who don't know this story, um, 
going to do my best to keep it level. In um, my second year of law school, <clears throat> I was uh, kidnapped and raped and stuffed in a closet, boarded up uh, and tied up in the closet. I went through my whole law school career going inside and outside of court systems, um, more so than usually I, I did those years. The man was a serial rapist, serial kidnapper, and uh, after he was convicted, I, was, I, I left the state and I went back to New Jersey, or came to New Jersey, and I figured it was all over and done with. I was feeling what I thought mentally good. I was feeling I was many states away, and I had received justice, as human beings called it justice. Um, and so I, I came back home and continued living and doing and working and thinking I was absolutely okay and winning it. So I, we know that there was obviously trauma from what you experienced. Oh, most definitely. Uh, everything that you were saying today was ringing in my head. Um, you get flashbacks, lots of flashbacks. Um, this event happened at night, so I was paralyzed, couldn't go out at night. My work schedule, my school schedule, everything had to be coordinated, so I was a day student instead of a night student. Um, I was kidnapped by someone of a different race, so unfortunately, every time I saw someone of that different race, I would freeze up involuntarily and just, you know, I used to sleep with my clothes on a lot at night, uh, with the lights on at night, um, and just certain times of the year would trigger this incident, and uh, it, I would kind of freeze, freeze at that time. I became very judgmental. I became very angry, and the anger would come up at unknown times. Not one thing would trigger it, and. Um, and in my line of work, that wasn't so good because I was dealing with people who had committed crimes and I began kind of being their judge and taking that home also and being mad at things that would just crop up. Um, so it deprived me of happiness, joy, and it beca I became bitter. Even though you had justice. Even though I had justice, I was told that um, there was a closure to this, that I would feel so much better. Um, and it just, I didn't understand it. And I still don't understand that closure today. <laughs> so. I think it's important to know, I mean, when you think, when you listen to Dina talk, you realize we can blame a lot of things on trauma, right? But there's another layer happening here, and that's a layer of unforgiveness. Mm -hmm. Because it's unresolved trauma, not just trauma received, but it's trauma that you have not technical term be expiated from your life, right? And so remember with the scapegoat, they would, in, at the, in Leviticus 16, they'd put the sins on the goat, one would get killed, one would get removed. Expiation, propitiation. So Dina, how did you begin to feel like God was drawing you? Because you weren't a believer at this time. Absolutely. So how did you begin to be, feel like you were being drawn to understand forgiveness? Oh, well that became even... Uh... I think the whole event became even more traumaful, a trauma. Uh, and 
about five, six years ago, uh, you would get those automatic calls on your phone that says that the inmate with a certain number was moved to whatever unit and whatever unit within that facility you were, as a victim, told every single time. And one day I picked up this automatic uh, call and it said that the inmate number had been moved to what's called um, the uh, death unit. And it dawned on me that uh, there were three of us and victim number one had been uh, killed. So part of my plea agreement, really technical stuff that I'll just simply say, my case was not used in, in that particular trial. So in that, he was being put to death. Uh, in Arkansas that year, uh, they do it by needle. And the medicine that they were using was running out and expiring. So that year, they did, the state killed, I want to say, eight to ten people within a two to three week time slot, and that was the most at that time that a state had ever done. And so they called it the conveyor belt of death, and one of the inmates was Marcel, was the individual who had committed this crime, and it kind of stuck at me right there, and I just didn't think anyone... Uh, killed people anymore. I didn't think anyone was executed anymore. And that kind of brought it all back. And I, I kind of questioned it. And I said, do I really want someone to be executed for this? And if so, what do I want from this? Why is this still making me mad? If I had thought that I had placed a society and in my head thought I had forgiven this person and I had moved on, why is it this affecting me? Why am I so... Um, upset by this. And so that kind of opened it up. And at that point, I had started going to church. And I kept on reading passages about forgiveness. And, and But society was telling me at the same time that you were the perfect victim. You didn't know this person. You were totally innocent. That This should have never happened to you. Um, you have a right to be angry. You have a right to hate this man. You have every right to hate him. And so while I was reading my Bible, my Bible wasn't telling me that, though. My Bible was telling me you need to love him. You need to forgive him. And I couldn't come in my head logistically, the human side that was telling me you need to hate him. And... Jesus telling me, you need to love him and you need to forgive him. And so as I was getting closer and closer to God, and yet not yet becoming a believer, but feeling this closeness to God and feeling and praying, so much praying, that I knew that God had wanted me to forgive this man and somehow tell him and somehow tell everyone who either knew who God was or was not yet there like I was that he needed to be forgiven and I was going to forgive him. So how did that happen and how did that impact you? In Arkansas, about two, three weeks before someone is executed, there's a clemency hearing. And at that clemency hearing, you get both sides. You get whoever's supporting him in his quest to be uh, saved, and whoever supported the state 
in order to have him executed, you have your say. I first called the state and I said, I, I'm victim too. And they're like, yeah, we know who you are. And they're like, come on board. You know, if you want him to be executed, we're here for you. We support you. We'll fly you down, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, but what if I don't want that to happen? And I, I got the hang up. And then I still knew people in the defense side. And I called and I said, I need to find this man's attorney. <clears throat> and I need to speak to them because I need to speak on his behalf. I don't know why. I don't know what I'm saying. I just know that God's telling me to do this. And so they vetted me out because, you know, you get wackies. They knew who I was and uh, they knew my name. And they were just astounded that I would call them in the first place because this apparently had not happened before. And so they flew over and made sure, and they wanted to know what I was going to say, but there's a kind of dichotomy there that you can't know too much because you are also cross-examined by the state. You can be while you're sitting testifying. And you don't want to be seen as someone who is paid by this man to come and speak on behalf or favor this guy in some weird way. And they want to protect his rights, even though he was looking at death at that point, like literal execution. And so they, they were two Christians, remember, which was really kind of cool and comforting to me, even though I had not been a Christian yet. And so I went and um, went to the clemency hearing, with, which is within the death unit. Uh, if you go for the prosecuting attorney's office, they put you through a nice hotel and you're allowed to testify in the comforts of this luxury hotel. As a defense witness, the luxury you get to go through is a pat down and a search down and you go inside the uh, death walls uh, and you face your accuser. And I really didn't know what I was going to say. I just knew that every single night before this, I prayed, like morning and night. And at that time, I came in, and it's a big filmed thing. The state loves their executions there. And it was a crazy circus event where you had this big panel in front of you who questioned you, and they got to decide whether there was clemency or not. And then there was this big, uh, uh, at that time, news uh, internet just had popped up, so you had Facebook, you had all these cameras, and the government, the state government was there, and lots of these officials who I didn't know who they were. And as soon as he looked at me, or he wouldn't look at me, I, I said his name, and I think he was, it was unusual for anything, anyone to call him by his full name, and he kind of involuntarily looked up, and I looked at him, and just the first words that came out was, Marcel, I forgive you. And as soon as I said that, this kind of big weight off my shoulders had been lifted. And it was almost my full breath that I was able to take since the conviction. And like every anger that I ever had that I had just heaped upon myself was just no longer there. The rest of what I said, I can't even remember. I have no idea. I just remember at the end, I was the last speaker, um, that the board <clears throat> went by and 
I knew exactly what the count was going to be because the ones who it really kind of hit them looked straight at me in the face and said, thank you. And the other ones who I knew were voting against it just completely avoided my eyes and just looked somewhere else and just walked right past me. But it was just an unbelievable release of all the anger that I had been harboring those entire years. Now, how close was that to when Jesus' forgiveness became real in your life? Huh. Uh, Marcel was uh, executed a week before Easter that year. That winter, I had uh, started going to Revolve, and that winter, I, I became baptized. So it was that close. So, Dina, is there, when you think about people who think, who they say, maybe you're sitting here and you said, I've already dealt with this, I've forgiven them, but you still have persistent negative emotions, you still have recurring thoughts of retaliation, (laughs) avoidance, rehearsing the offense, you know, and then you listen to what Dina said, having emotional release, having compassion, letting go of the need for revenge, acceptance or even reconciliation, you realize there's some big differences between true forgiveness that you say versus forgiveness where you say, I forgave them. Um, And so when you think about there's one thing that you could Mm -hmm. say to people who are wrestling with stuff and maybe they're just coming to the light now as they sit here, how would you encourage people who are struggling with this? Oh, man, there is so much freedom. There is so much freedom in forgiveness. Um, it's giddy. I mean, it seriously is. You know, after doing it, it, there's such a release. There's so much more happiness and joy in the simple things, in my everyday job. I, uh, I now minister to people so much more than I used to before. There's no judgment in it. Um, there's a true love for who these people are. People probably don't know. Oh, I'm a criminal investigator for the public defender's office. So we defend people who are going to state prison for any crime that you can go to state prison for, any felony. And so before where I used to be so angry at these people and judge them and verbally tell them what they've done wrong in their lives, because apparently I am the perfecter and I knew exactly where they had gone wrong, There is so much more I take myself out of that because it's none of my business. That's God's business. I'm there to minister to them if they want to know who Jesus is. I'm there to pray for them. I'm there to tell them despite who they are, God still loves them. And that makes such a world of difference for my ability to do my job. My ability to share who Jesus is and truly know that he forgives, truly know that he loves you, despite whatever you've done to anyone or who you think you've become and you think you're so unlovable that no one can love you. I'm there to tell you Jesus loves you, despite whatever you have ever done in your entire life. He truly does. Now, you told me, if I remember correctly, that Marcel, he received, he became a follower of Jesus before his execution. Right, right. right. Um, as again, it's kind of like a secretive thing that you go into doing. You're ushered in that same day. You're ushered in that same night. You're flown out. You're not, you don't speak to anybody. 
also goes with the sense of saying, you don't know anything about Marcel's life. I knew his full name only because of the trial. Anything about his life, I was told or I listened to as we sat there that day at his clemency hearing. And at that time, I was told because of the testimony that he had been saved and he had taken in Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so Marcel was saved before I was saved. And think about this. I mean, this is kind of a mind bend. But we, we struggle with that, right? But there's no depth of depravity from which God cannot save us. And in part, what was happening was the Lord in his sovereignty was also sending a gift to him to have Dina forgive him in that clemency hearing, almost as a way of saying to him, I've forgiven you, my son. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really wild. I apologize. We don't have more time um, with the dance studio coming in. But what I want to say is this. This is a heavy, heavy topic, right? Um, if you are struggling with forgiveness, God comforts us in our discomfort so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we have received. Um, you can find freedom. You can find freedom. Um, if you need forgiveness, Jesus offers it. And if you need to forgive someone else, feel free to talk with someone like Dina or one of the elders where we can encourage you. And we'll pray over you. We can't pray over you in here because we have to pack up, but maybe you can find a tucked away corner of the hallway or something like that. But can we just thank Dina for sharing? That took a lot of courage to share. And let me pray. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for the work of grace. God, we know that it's you. It's, it's not Dina, it's you, Lord. It's your grace at work in us. Father God, I pray that you would encourage each of us to keep short accounts. And those who have experienced real wounds, as there most assuredly are people in this room who have experienced deep wounds, may they be inspired by what the Spirit can do to bring about freedom and forgiveness. Lord, we just thank you. We pray, Lord, for Dina. We pray that you would encourage her heart today. Lord, in your name we pray these things. Amen.